Hi, my name is Bob Brooks, host and moderator of Long in the Tooth. This is a podcast primarily for late career dentists who are interested in doing a great job with their practices currently and also in planning for a transition of their practices to new ownership in the future. Our vision for the podcast is to be an educational format, not salesy at all. If you have been directed to join this podcast by a member of the dental industry in the United States, please thank them. This is going to benefit you. These are educational presentations that will hopefully help your profitability, your peace of mind, and your planning for the future as you are considering transitioning your practice to new ownership. Well, this is Long in the Tooth podcast for our third episode with Ben Tuanay of Veritas Dental Resources. Ben, we're glad to have you with us again. It's my pleasure, Bob. I must be doing something right. Three in a row, I guess, huh? <laughs> That's right. Third time's a charm. Okay, our topic today is how to reduce or maximize insurance administration with a dental office. So, First question is, what are most practices doing wrong when it comes to insurance administration? Good question. I think the, the answer that I have for that is the mindset. Um, too often, we mistakenly train patients to put insurance before their treatment. You know, I see this all the time in dental practices where when you call in, the very first question the receptionist would ask me is, what insurance are you on? <laughs> you know, I think that's an important question, but it, it, it's, also, it's also not, to me, it's not appropriate to ask that as the first question, simply because now the patients the, automatically, boom, insurance, let's talk about insurance, you know, and, 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 and usually leading to that is, you know, we gather insurance information over the phone, and usually that's one of the first things that, uh, that, that take place on a phone call is, what, you know, what's your insurance, what's your ID number and all that. Um, and, and I think that's a mistake simply because when it comes down to, to every aspect of encountering or any encounter with that patient, we've trained that patient to think insurance before clinical care, you know. So I think it starts from the very beginning when a patient calls me and, you know, this is what I, I, I tell my clients and, I, you know, I don't get too much into the details of practice management coaching, but whenever I hear them ask for insurance, I say, hey, mix, up, mix it up a little bit, especially if it's a client that we're coaching to go out of network. I say, the very first thing you want to do on that call is take control. You know, somebody calls in and say, hey, my name is so-and-so. And then they say, do you take Aetna or do you take Delta Dental? And I'm not in network with Delta Dental. Usually the very first thing that I do is I say, hey, you know, thank you so much for calling. I'm going to get to your question here in a minute, but who do I have the pleasure of chatting with? Something very friendly, you know, to sort of disarm them from this insurance mindset. And then at, at that point, when you, when you refer to them by name and have a conversation where they, you know, I, I think human beings, we, we love when people call us by name, you know. Um, when we hear our names, you know, we all kind of have this hidden uh, desire to become a celebrity, you know. <laughs> so when we hear our name, it, it means a lot to us. It becomes more personal, you know. And, and I think that first impression with the patient in terms of setting the mindset right for insurance, because it greatly impacts insurance administration, is important. Now, the way I handle this if I'm out of network is I say, hey, Bob, thank you so much for calling in today. We, we really look forward to visiting with you. 
You're going to love our team. Our doctors are so great. Our hygienist is awesome. You know, in terms of your question regarding um, uh, Delta Dental, we are actually considered a non-participating provider with Delta Dental. And yes, it does mean out of network, but what it truly means is that we have the, a greater ability to protect the quality of care that we deliver you by not allowing Delta Dental to dictate what benefits you can and cannot have access to or what type of procedures they feel best, you know, for, that you should get when we're the ones that are actually in there and trained to do the best work uh, possible for you. We have a lot of Delta patients that really love our office. Check out our reviews. Most of those patients are Delta Dental. And we would love to invite you to come into our office as well. And now let me just ask you, and then you pivot to the question, are, do you have any existing dental work that needs to be done? Now you, that's when you get into the clinical work, you know? And, and, and the mindset and the focus now is on what they need. You know, depending on how they answer that, you can pivot to other, you know, however you want in terms of um, the focus. But, but when you schedule the patient with the procedure in mind, rather than the insurance in mind, as an out-of-network practice, we, we, we get a very high rate almost a 98% scheduling rate for patients that call in, you know? Now, if I'm, if, if I'm in network, you wanna follow that same mentality, but eliminate that the I am out of, you know, unrestricted process, say, oh, absolutely, we do participate with Delta Dental, but you wanna, again, you wanna, you wanna have that as secondary. Name first, Delta, you know, then you mentioned Delta to acknowledge, making sure that they don't feel like you're ignoring their question. And then you pivot to the clinical, you know, what, what they need for that day. Why is this important, Bob? Is when the patient comes in, you're constantly tra training them. Like the, the out-of-network practices, the, the, the most successful out-of-network practices, they don't give estimates to patients that have insurance. They don't give any quotes. They don't give any expectation. They focus on the quality of, of the treatment and the, and the need or the desire for treatment and then they let the patient know, they said, you know, fortunately you do have a PPO plan that does have coverage, uh, whether it's in network or out of network. Um, and what we're gonna do is we're gonna, we're gonna prepare a claim for you. And this is what the out of network practices do. This is we're, we're gonna prepare a claim for you to, to, to ensure that it's written appropriately and correctly for you to submit to your insurance plan. And what these practices do, Bob, is they collect in full from patients. So if the patient needs a $3,000 treatment that day, they're collecting 3,000 or at least they start with 3,000. If the patient you know, wants to break that up, be flexible, you know? give them the payment plan or whatever it may be, you know, care credit or uh, whatever other solutions you have. But what we find with this, Bob, is that training the patients to not, I shouldn't use the word distract them from insurance because we don't wanna be deceiving, but just training their focus in a different area of your encounter with them where insurance is the last thing you discuss what you will find is that even if you are an in-network practice, that the insurance administration becomes so much easier. And what I mean by that, when I submit a claim and it gets denied, um, you know, typically I'll, I'll, I'll send that to the patient and say, we submitted it and they, you know, it got denied. Um, and, and, and likely the patient will work on getting the appeal done on their own. Now I know that this is like a futuristic, idealistic practice, right? But a lot of our, our clients actually do that. Um, you know, so, so the expectation on the patient side isn't necessarily they're waiting for insurance. You know, they're just, you know, they 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 have their, their one finger on the phone to call you if insurance doesn't pay on day thirty. You know what I mean? They don't care simply because that's not their focus. So I, I, I'm, again, I'm kind of babbling and giving you um, a ten dollar answer for a one dollar question. <laughs> but <laughs> but to me, it just starts with the mindset on training patients in terms of their focus and how they how they deal with you as a clinician. 
Well, I uh, really relate to the comments you made, Ben, about uh, knowing somebody's name and using their name and basically harvesting that name early on in the conversation. My late father-in-law uh, was a uh, high school administrator at one point in his career for a large high school. And believe it or not, he knew the name of every student in the school. And I'll tell you, if uh, that's quite a, uh, an ability to do that. I know when I'm going to a meeting or something and I'm uh, I may be rehearsing in my mind the name of the the uh, practice owner I'm going to meet with and perhaps a number of their staff members, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, Susan's at the front desk and, you know, Julie's the hygienist and all that so that, you know, I can uh, really relate to the to the dentist. And I think knowing a person's name, that's really the most valuable thing that mm -hmm. a person owns is their name. Yep, I agree. When it comes to uh, basic level CD coding, what are common issues with coding uh, that pertain to insurance billing that dental offices need to be aware of? Yes. Uh, so coding is so important because what I usually see, Bob, is um, underutilization of the codes. Um, in many practices, um, they'll perform a buildup on a crown where a buildup is necessary for crown retention, but they don't report the buildup simply because um, the insurance industry has trained them that, well, we're not going to pay for the buildup. And that's actually not true. But practices are under the perception that there are certain procedures that the insurance company won't pay for. So I'm, in order for us to keep our numbers looking clean on the accounting side of things, we're just not going to report things that they don't pay for. Now, I know this isn't a major problem in the industry, but I want to, but it is a problem. There are many practices that do this. I bring up this buildup example simply because this kind of leads to other areas and examples of coding mistakes. So this practice believes that buildups aren't covered. Well, the issue is, is that the buildups, if a crown is covered, chances are the buildup is going to be covered as well simply because it's an, it is a necessary component, a necessary procedure to retain that crown to that tooth. And the insurance companies typically would have different requirements on how they pay for that buildup. With Cigna as an example, if you submit the buildup and you're reporting the crown on, on, the, on the prep date, the date that you perform the buildup, um, when the EOB comes back, typically Cigna will include the buildup as part of the crown procedure. So you're only getting a reimbursement for the crown and you can only collect a copayment from the patient based upon the crown. In order for you to unbundle that buildup, you have to report the seat date the crown seat date to the insurance plan. And that's, that's Cigna's policy. They, in, their, in their resource guide, uh, they, they also call it a, a policy and procedure manual. They clearly state in there that so long as the practice reports the seat date, at that point, the, the, the buildup would then be considered its own separate procedure and it would, would then be unbundled. Now with CDT coding, it's very important for every dental practice to know and understand that current dental terminology is owned by the American Dental Association. Now on every fee schedule that you get from an insurance company, either on the top or on the bottom in fine print, it says that the CDT is the property of the American Dental Association. Uh, why is this important? It's because the insurance companies lease the CDT from the American Dental Association. Within that leasing agreement, it says that the insurance company agrees to abide by the current dental terminology and they also agree to not change any of the definitions. So there are ways of getting around changing the definitions 
is they'll, they'll bundle things like crowns and billups as an example. And if you don't know what that insurance company's policy is on unbundling those crowns, you might end up in this category like the, the first example that I mentioned that these practices just don't bill its insurance. Or if they do, they believe that well, buildups are just not covered with this particular plan. So uh, my advice in terms of coding, CDT uh, coding, is make sure that you understand the codes. Uh, make sure that every year you're subscribing to the code changes from the American Dental Association. And in addition to that, make sure that you obtain what's called either a dental resource guide or a uh, policy and procedure manual from every insurance plan that you're in network with or even out of network with. Simply because these policy and procedure manuals, these are the coding guidelines that tell dental practices how this insurance company will process claims. And your eyes will be completely open to see like this buildup example and so many different things as it pertains to coding uh, that will help you. Now, if an insurance carrier changes the definition and they say, well, this isn't a buildup, <laughs> at that point you can warn them and, and let them know that it's against CDT, it's against their leasing agreement with the ADA to change the definition of, the, uh, of a particular code. Okay, but that's uh, my uh, simple advice is uh, just make sure that you understand the codes and understand the policy and procedure manuals. And that'll greatly help you in terms of insurance and coding administration. Thank you. Now, how would a practice owner handle non-covered services? Good question. Uh, in, in, I believe, closer to 40 states have a state law that prohibits insurance carriers from dictating to a dental practice that's in network that that dental practice has to honor the lower PPO fee schedule for a non-covered service. So first find out whether you reside in a state that has a non-covered service dental law. I think the easiest way you can do that, Bob, is just go to Google uh, or any search engine and put dental non-covered service laws or legislation. And you'll find a number of websites out there that do list all the states. And even a lot of those websites will actually allow you to obtain a copy of your state's current law regarding non-covered services. Now read through that law, make sure that you fully understand it, simply because um, you know, you'll get challenged by an insurance carrier. There's, there's some rules like, for instance, if it's, if it's a, a crown procedure as an example, but the patient met their annual maximum and that crown would have been covered if their annual maximum was available, that point, that's not a non-covered service. That's a covered service, but it's limited by the annual maximum. In some states, the definition of a non-covered service is different. And, and you want to follow and abide those definitions. Otherwise, if you try to challenge an insurance company, they're going to do the same thing and say, actually, have you read the law? They'll send you a copy of the law and say, well, you're wrong because this is how the, the state defines non-covered services. To say, so to save yourself uh, you know, um, time uh, being harassed by an insurance carrier, you be the expert. And what you'll find, it's usually the reverse, where you're teaching and coaching the insurance company on what the state law says, because the vast majority of them have no idea what your state law says, because they're processing claims for you and every other doctor in your state. And they're also processing claims for other doctors in other states. So they're not the experts when it comes to the legality or the legal aspects of non-covered services. You don't have to be a lawyer to call them out on something that's legal. Just let the, let the law speak for itself. So yeah, find, find a copy of your non, state non-covered service law and, and you can follow those definitions and enforce them. 
Ben, what about services that are severely undercompensated by insurance, like uh, veneers, implants, and even cosmetic crowns? Uh, how can somebody survive, you know, by giving first class, uh, providing first class dentistry with, uh, you know, these low reimbursements? Absolutely. So I, I think that's an excellent question because this, this question comes up on a daily basis, Bob. Um, you know, the insurance industry, in my opinion, they cover the basics. They cover functional dentistry. Does it fit? Um, not necessarily whether it looks good, right? If you need a crown or a set of veneers and the veneers are covered, you have to keep in mind that this is very basic dentistry. And in fact, you know, I actually went to the depths of researching the contracts that the insurance plan has with the employer or the patient if it's an individual plan. And all of those contracts state that if the patient chooses to obtain a procedure that is higher in value than, than the procedure that we cover, meaning if the patient needs a crown, but the, the patient wants a, a crown with gold studs or even a crown with cosmetics, like a, an Emax crown as an example, the insurance plan is saying, we're gonna cover the basics. That's what our reimbursements are built on is the very basics. But if the patient wants something more expensive, something with more value, then it's the patient's right to obtain that higher procedure at their own expense. Now this is key, Bob, simply because when you charge the patient an extra fee for an added value crown, the insurance company 100% of the time is gonna come back and say, well, you can't do that. The fee that you're charging is included in our negotiated rate with you, which completely contradicts the employer contract, right? But the issue is, is that most dental practices won't be able to get a copy of that employer contract. Uh, so the way I handle this is that if I need to provide an added value service above and beyond the scope of what insurance covers, I will give the patient an option. I will let them know that, you know, well, more so a disclosure that your insurance plan covers the basics. What we do in our practice is above the basics. We do, and then you explain, you know, the quality, you explain the value proposition to the patient. And then you let the patient know, fortunately, you do have the right to obtain these higher procedures at your own expense after whatever insurance covers. And I believe it's a great investment. I would do stuff like this if I were you, if I wanted this level of quality. And at that point, you have the patient sign a consent form where they fully acknowledge the crown is covered for whatever reasons that are indicated by the dentist, but the non-covered service component, whether it's the cosmetics, the, the higher nature value nature of the crown, if it's zirconia, it lasts forever. The patient is paying for the, the value properties of the crown that the insurance doesn't pay for. And I wouldn't even use a CDT code. I would, you know, it's so hard to describe these value codes. I just create my own in-house code. And I would have the patient acknowledge that. And then I would have the patient sign an insurance waiver, uh, meaning this is not uncovered. And so therefore the patient agrees uh, that this is going to be paid for out of their own pocket and it will not be submitted to insurance, the non-covered service only. Why is that important? Well, the federal government created a law called the HITECH Act back in 2009. And the HITECH Act basically states that if a patient receives or signs an insurance waiver, under this law, under no circumstance is the dental office per permitted to discussing that procedure with the patient's insurance plan. If the patient goes and talks to their insurance company about it, they can do that. But if the insurance company says, hey, what was this procedure about? Under no circumstance are you legally 
uh, allowed to discuss that procedure. And, and this is beautiful for an audit. You know, if you're audited, you have to, you cannot share that particular non-covered service with the insurance company. It's as if it never happened. So that's the beauty about this concept is that the procedure doesn't get, well, the non-covered service doesn't get submitted to insurance, but you are bound by law to keep that particular uh, fee service confidential. Okay? Got it. That's how you protect yourself from an audit. But you apply that in so many different areas in dentistry and what you find is that if you're a PPO participating provider, you know now you're you can do the veneers at your own fee. You know what minus what insurance covers. You can you can employ uh, a concept where the patients can choose and elect to obtain procedures at their own free will if they're willing to pay for them out of pocket without risk of the insurance companies abusing you by telling you that you shouldn't make money off of your hard work. That's. Great information. Now, this next question is about pre-authorizations, and I know there are differences between offices, and it's interesting for me to to see how different offices handle this uh, because some of them do so poorly. Uh, how do you implement a pre-authorization policy without delaying treatment uh, that results in you know uh, patients waiting a long time to uh, to uh, receive treatment and being you know, having to go back to the offices? Good question. Um, uh, first and foremost, I believe that the pre-authorization, a uh, pre-authorization policy should be for you. This is for you to know how the insurance plan is going to pay you. Um, what you typically find in an existing practice is that you have employer profiles and you have a lot, you've seen a lot of patients from these, from this particular employer group. So you kind of have a sense of what the insurance plan covers. Um, a lot of the pre-authorizations, if you submit them electronically online through your clearinghouse or directly through the insurance plan, those pre-authorizations would actually come back within a week or sometimes less or sometimes two weeks. If you submit them via paper, then yeah, they'll come back six to 10 weeks down the road. Wow. But I think, I think if it's treatment that's emergent, um, it's a good idea to still submit a pre-authorization if you can. But at the very least, do a verification of benefits just to see what the plan is covering or what will cover and what available benefits the patient has. Submit for the pre-op, but schedule the treatment, you know, and, and don't wait for the pre-op to come back to proceed with treatment, provided that you went through the, the verification of benefits process where you know that you're not going to, you know, you can have you know, kind of have a basic idea of what the insurance plan is going to cover. The pre-authorization is good for a couple of reasons. If it comes back after treatment, it, it confirms what the insurance plan pays. And let's say the pre-authorization comes back approved, but the claim is denied because you did the procedure last week. You can use the pre-authorization to appeal the deny claim. Why? It's because the pre-authorization says approval. <laughs> it's a, it, the pre-authorization basically says, okay, this is how we're gonna cover the claim once it comes in for this particular treatment. And so long as the treatment matches what you actually submitted, you can use the pre-authorization to appeal the denied claim. But beyond that, Bob, I use the pre-authorization data to build the employer profile and make sure that the, the, the coverage on that employer profile is current so that anytime another patient from this employer comes in and needs the same treatment, I know exactly what the insurance covers. You know, um, so that, But that's the value of the pre-authorization is mostly for you, knowing if the plan's going to pay what they pay, as well as having a document to help you appeal denied claims if you see a consistent pattern of denials. Well, Ben, we're just wrapping it up with our last question here. We appreciate your participation in these three episodes. 
And uh, what uh, advice do you have for listeners that are looking for some low-hanging fruit opportunities when it comes to being more efficient with insurance administration in their dental offices? Good question. I mean, there are a number of great courses out there that you can take uh, on insurance administration. I think, you know, coding books are good and there are a number of them. I, I kind of like um, uh, the dental claim support education that they have. They have a number of webinars on insurance administration. Um, uh, but, you know, as, as far as uh, resources for easy resources for any dental practice to to learn buy the ADA's coding book. Um, by Charles Blair's coding book. That's a really good one as well. Although I would, I would caution that sometimes in uh, organizations that are not the American Dental Association, they'll have a different interpretation on how to process claims. And, and, and sometimes, and I'm not saying this about Charles Blair's book or any of the others, is that sometimes the feedback in there is, more, is really leaning more towards how the insurance companies want you to view coding. But, but you can always go back to the, what the ADA says. The ADA is the authority on coding. And to me, that is probably the best resource that you can get in terms of understanding coding. And then secondly, understanding how the insurance companies define, not necessarily redefine the codes, but how they define claims processing. And I think we mentioned it either in this episode or the one before, the dental resource guides or the policy and procedure manuals combined for each insurance carrier combined with the ADA's coding book, you can hardly go wrong in terms of having the best, most current up-to-date information on how to use the codes appropriately. And often what you'll find with the dental resource guides, it'll give you some tips and tricks on how to, how to avoid mishaps in terms of claims denials and issues as it pertains to billing. But those are, those are some good resources for listeners to tap into. Well, Ben, this has uh, been great having you with us for these three episodes, and I'm sure there'll be uh, practice owners and uh, dental industry advisors that would uh, probably have questions and like to get in touch with you. Could you please share your contact information? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Bob. So our office number is 888-808-4513, or you can email me directly at ben at veritasdentalresources.com. Veritas is spelled V as in Victor, E-R-I-T-A-S. So that's Ben at VeritasDentalResources.com. Ben, it's been a pleasure having you with us. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much, Bob. I really appreciate it. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.